I'm ready when you are. You can feel the country's on a knife edge. It's only, what, 30 minutes late starting? Let's do this! <laughs> it's a joke, obviously. You are in retreat. We're not rioting yet. I don't like that question. You're just saying shit and you don't even know what you're talking about. That spider game sounds way cooler than manta rays, doesn't it? And I was like, well, here's my two cents. You, you, you need a lot of stuff. That's how we should describe the podcast. If they ever went out and recruited one more person, then we'd have double the number of people listening. Well then. Let's start the show. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to the show. First off, let me apologize. I know it's been a long time since we've recorded an episode. Uh, two months almost to be exact. However, I do have a good reason for not being here. I was in the month of September back home in Canada getting married. Yes, thank you, thank you. Uh, it was a lovely time. It was a lovely ceremony. Uh, as such, we were away from the podcast. However, um, some things are just more important, you know, some things. And uh, my beautiful girlfriend, Teresa, became my beautiful wife, Teresa. So thank you to everyone that was there. Uh, special thanks to Brad as well. He made the trip from the UK, joined us in Canada uh, for for the wedding, and it was a pleasure to have him. And announcement number two. As you've probably noticed, you haven't heard the smart British accent of my co-host Brad chiming in with his wit witty quips. And that's because he's not here. Today I am a single Brad. It's tough being a single Brad, as some of you may know. You have to do all the jobs around the podcast by yourself. And it ain't easy, producing, researching, and now hosting all by myself. Uh, if I do say so, though, um, I think you're left with the better Brad. But I'll let you chime in on that. Hashtag better Brad. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram for that matter. At 2 brad for you. Even better, actually, is you could let us know which hashtag better Brad you prefer. Um, on iTunes or Stitcher. As you know, we're on those platforms, and we would love it if you gave us a rating. Um, and not just a rating, but also a review. Get on there, take the whatever it is, two minutes, five minutes out of your day, give us a rating. I don't know, is it stars? Is it thumbs up, thumbs down? I don't know what it is. But go on there, rate us, and then actually take the time to write a review. This increases our traffic, and as you know, we are all about traffic. We want to bump those numbers. We want to boost those numbers. So if you could do that, that would be awesome. Um, preferably a favorable rating, but you know what? We will read the reviews and ratings uh, on the air if we get good ones or bad ones. 
So um, let us have it. Uh, hopefully they're good. Otherwise, I would say, why the hell are you listening to this anyway? You can let us know what you want to hear uh, in terms of stories, in terms of content. You can let us know which Brad you think is better. You can talk to us about being a single Brad yourself. We're open to it all. But um, just get on there. Do us the favor. Uh, give us the review. Give us the rating. It would be much appreciated. And now I must move on to announcement number three. And announcement number three is not a happy one. Since we've been away, we've lost a few greats. A few greats in the music community. First to go was Mr. Tom Petty. And Tom Petty was a big was a big thing for me and my now wife Teresa. We road tripped to a number of his concerts. She was a huge fan. I'd always been a fan. Um, but since we got together, I've become an even bigger fan. And you know, he kind of meant a lot to our us. In our relationship, his music was featured at our wedding, and we saw him just recently this last summer in London in Hyde Park, and just, you know, he will be missed. What a what a great talent, you know, you forget how classic a lot of those songs are, um, and I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with uh, Tom Petty of the Heartbreakers, and uh, are also sad to see him go. Number two, though, you might not have heard of. Um, if you've listened to all the episodes of this show, you have definitely heard me talk about Mr. Gord Downey, the lead singer and uh, honorary frontman for the entire country of Canada um, and the band The Tragically Hip, uh, passed away also this week. Um, in earlier episodes of this show, we uh, discussed him uh, because he made an announcement that he had incurable brain cancer um, and that, you know, hit the nation hard. Um, despite that, last summer they were able, him and the band were able to do one last cross Canada tour, which was a pretty epic feat um, and it meant a lot to the nation. But we just learned this week that he has succumbed to his illness. And I'm going to like encourage all of you to just google the tragically hip listen to some songs my favorite albums tough to choose but i'm gonna say if you want to get into the band road apples phantom power um fully completely or trouble in the hen house would be good ones to start with but this is a band that it's really tough for us canadians to try and describe to outsiders a lot of times it seems like people don't get it and i'm not sure really what there is to get um, he was a brilliant lyricist, an amazing frontman. I guess maybe that's part of it is seeing them live was a whole experience in itself. He often improvised rants and poems in between songs, sort of changed up the lyrics to make them, you know, more topical or specific to the place in which they were playing. Um, there's lots of examples of his, you know, famous rants, we'll say, on YouTube. Um, but I guess, you know, they get described as this uniquely Canadian band. And for Canadians, there was always, there's always this debate about like, what is Canadian? What is Canadian culture? What does it mean? And if you look at any of the interviews or comments and things, um, in, in the Canadian media, media right now, speaking about Gordon, the tragically hip, they all say that this is the closest we've been able to come to define like, what is Canada and what is Canadian culture? So 
to me and uh, one journalist in Canada, Stephen Brunt, put it um, quite quite well. I thought, um, and to paraphrase, he was like, you know, you have a hardworking, straight ahead rock band fronted by this crazy showman poet of a singer and lyricist and you know maybe that's what canadian is we're not sure but if it is that's pretty damn cool but um but i guess it's the lyrics it's the feel it's the fact that so many people in canada know this band and love this band and it means so much to them you know to see the interviews people getting emotional our prime minister mr trudeau got quite emotional um speaking about gord uh, when he passed and they were friends so um it was tough for him but it's one of those things where it's like everybody feels like they're friends with gord i met him once waited after a show at a bar in calgary um i met him in the band once and he was great you know he was just when he spoke to you it was like you he you know he meant it he was there he signed a little piece of um, cardboard that i had and the only thing i had to get an autograph and he signed it, you know, asked my name, gave him my name, Brad. And he wrote Brad's band and then Gord Downey, you know, and, and, and that's how each and every one of us felt, you know, that it was our band, the Tragically Hip. And so it's sad to see him go. Um, it was great that we all, the nation had one last go around with him and the boys Um I'm in the works talking with some of my old podcast pals from Calgary to maybe do a sort of Gord Downey tragically hip album by album breakdown. Um, so if we do get that rolling, I will announce it here, I'm sure. And then, uh, yeah, we'll go from there. So, you know, a, a couple sad stories uh, coming from the music world, but I guess, you know, I am now sort of at that age where you know, the heroes that I looked up to are, are also getting older. Um, so anyway, uh, that's my little, my little words for words for Gord and, uh, and the tragic hip and our Canadian fans, you know, all two of you that are out there listening, um, we appreciate it. And to the other two of you that are listening that aren't from Canada, do check out the tragically hip. I think it's worth your time. Um, interesting band, uh, like I said, very hardworking, straight ahead rock band with, you know, a very interesting front man. So here's to you, Gord. All right. Wow. With that, with the announcements out of the way, um, let's get down to it. Um, so we're going to so got a couple medical stories here for you today. And that's, you know, par for the course. That is kind of what we tend to be uh, trending to these days. And first off, we have a diabetes story. And I know, I know we've done, we've covered this a lot uh, in previous episodes, um, diabetes treatments and whatnot. And it is, as we've mentioned, near and dear to both uh, Brad and I. So we're going to cover it again. However, we have an exciting new twist. The stories that we've covered in the past have always been about treatments. You know, like I would call them like functional cures uh, for the disease. 
Um, we're speaking about type 1 diabetes. So if you remember, type 1 is where your immune system attacks the insulin-producing cells in your own pancreas, um, preventing you from uh, being able to uh, produce insulin. So in the past, we've talked about like these functional cures. like So something that is, you know, whether it's a new technology or something that's like so small that it compensates um, producing ins your insulin producing cells by producing the insulin for you. So it monitors your blood and then also produces the insulin for you. Um, and those would be great, obviously, um, because you're living symptom free. So it's essentially a cure. However, the story I have for you today is about an actual cure. We're talking about reversing type 1 diabetes. So how this has been done is with a generic vaccine known as Bacillus Calmet-Garin. You know the old BCG vaccine. This vaccine has been around for a hundred years. It's been in clinical use for a hundred years. Normally, it's been used to treat tuberculosis. However, phase one trials, so early trials, suggest that it could actually stimulate, permanently stimulate, the genes that code for these beneficial T cells. So T cells are a type of cell in the immune system, and the specific ones that this um, vaccine is targeting uh, are called T reg cells. And these are like the brakes of the immune system. That's how they're described. This is the brakes of the immune system. So this vaccine could actually, like I said, stimulate the genes that produce these, that code for these um, Treg cells and get them to start expressing um, more Treg cells. And this would then, you know, put the brakes on the immune system and prevent the immune system from attacking its own body tissue. So this was presented at a diabetes conference by the member of the Harvard Medical School. And it's, um, it's pretty fascinating because this would actually stop the autoimmune um, disorder. This would stop your immune system from attacking its own body. So this could potentially be good not just for type 1 diabetes, but other types of autoimmune diseases. There's some arthritis that's caused by autoimmune disease. And maybe even, you know, help regulate the immune system in terms of uh, irritable bowel syndrome. I know some allergies may be lumped into this as well. And it's interesting because it works through a, a process that's called epigenetics. So when we speak about genetics, we're talking about the genetic code. So the A, T, C's and G's and what they actually translate into in terms of when you look at a gene, what its gene sequence is, A, T, G, C, yada, 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 and what that translates into in the pro protein language to actually make the product. But epigenetics is like the next level of that. So once you know what the genes are, epigenetics is the body's mechanisms for turning genes on and off. How, why are some genes turned on? Why are some turned off? Why are some expressed in high amounts? Why are some, you know, expressed in low amounts? And so this um, vaccine works on that level. So it actually will upregulate, as they say, these genes that we want um, that code for the Treg cells and so that the body continues to produce them or will produce them for, you know, in spurts. And the idea is that they're hoping uh, with multiple 
um, doses of the vaccine that you can actually get the body to permanently start making these again. And that would then stop the um, immune system from attacking. So like I said, this vaccine has been in use for a hundred years. So that's good because we have all the safety data on it now. We know that it's safe. We know that you can give it to people and there's uh, little to no side effects. Um, and so right now they are currently enrolling patients for phase two trials. So they want to get 150 people. And from this article that I read, it seems they are almost full. So they will be releasing the data on the, the phase one trials later in the year. And in another interesting wrinkle about this story, the phase two trial is going to be funded completely by private philanthropy. So from individuals and family foundations. So I thought that was kind of interesting that if you had such a promising thing that they uh, are going the route of, uh, you know, private funding for it. I don't know if that's a case that they couldn't get the public funding or it was just this was available. So they went for it. So to anyone that's donated to diabetes causes, you know, the hats off to you. Um, thank you for your donation, because this could lead to a, a, a cure. You know, and, and we've said it before, you know, diabetes, watch yourself. We're coming for you. We're coming for you. And now this could be the actual, the actual cure. So an interesting story, an encouraging story, and uh, we'll follow up more as we hear more. So there you go. Watch out, type 1 diabetes. And all right, moving on to story number two. Story number two, because I am a single Brad today, I'm going to take uh, the easy route and I'm going to give you a, a, a 10 best list or a top 10 list, you know, because those are easy. And I'm pretty sure that's why David Letterman did them for years and years and years, right? Isn't that right? Although I don't have the Paul Schaefer to my David Letterman with me, um, I'm still going to do it because it's we're going to take the, take the easy road here. But what I'm going to bring you is the top 10 most unnecessary medical treatments according to scientists. Top 10 most unnecessary medical treatments. So in other words, the top 10 things your doctor will try to upsell you on. So... This study was done for the purpose of making the medical system in the U.S. more effective and more efficient, uh, according to the researchers that did the study. Uh, and I am getting my top 10 list from a Science Alert article. I will include the link in the show notes. Um, but according to one researcher, Daniel Morgan from the University of Maryland School of Medicine, he says, quote, too often healthcare practitioners do not rely on the latest evidence and their patients don't get the best care. Yikes, that doesn't sound so good. Uh, he goes on to say, hopefully this study will spread the word about the most overused tests and treatments. All right, well, in order to do my part, we are going to spread the word. 
so they went through the PubMed archive, so archive of medical journals, and they went through using search terms such as overuse, overtreatment, inappropriate, and unnecessary. All the words you want to hear uh, when you're at the doctor's office. Uh, they originally found 2,252 papers, uh, of which 1,224 addressed the overuse of medicine directly. So they wanted to focus on specifically on the papers that reported care in which potential harms outweigh potential benefits. Again, not something you want to hear as they're wheeling you down the hallway. So from this study, we have the top 10 most unnecessary medical treatments according to science in no particular order. But number 10, the transesophageal echocardiography. Yikes. Okay, so in simple terms, this procedure takes pictures of your heart using ultrasound from a tube inserted into your esophagus. So, if your doctor says, you know what, Bill or Jill or Meredith, we think we need to do a transesophageal echocardiography, you can tell them to just hold it right there. Because the doctor might use this instead of doing an electrocardiogram, you know, the, um, the plastic electrodes on your chest. Pretty simple, right? However, the research suggests that any extra detail that the esophageal method might produce is not worth, worth the risk of being sedated. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say the risk of trying to get a transesophageal echocardiography done without being sedated? Not good. Not good at all. All right, number nine, computed tomography, pulmonary, pulmonary angiography. Computed tomography, pulmonary angiography. Apologies for my pronunciation. This one I'm guessing involves computers, and it is a test that images the pulmonary arteries in patients with respiratory symptoms using a CT scan. Alright, that doesn't sound so bad because it isn't invasive. It's highly sensitive. But it hits you with a dose of radiation. So that's never good. Also, the wait for this test is likely to result in delays that raise the risk of complications developing. So by the time you can actually get in to get this thing done, you could have already died or be complicated. So, commuted, computed tomography, pulmonary, angiography, number nine, no good, don't do it. Number eight, also with computers, computed tomography, in any patients with respiratory symptoms. So computed tomography, any patient with respiratory symptoms, just don't do it. Don't let them sell you on it. Don't let them sell you on it. 
So this, of course, is any, any kind of CT scan on a patient with non-life-threatening respiratory symptoms. You got a cough, you got a cold, you ain't gonna die. Don't get the commuted, computed tomography. Not commuted at all. According to this study, this will do little to improve patient outcome. Worse still, the scan may raise the risks of false positives. So, you could be diagnosed with something that doesn't actually exist, or you don't actually have. Well, that's great. So not only does it do very little to improve your outcome, they might actually tell you you have a disease that you don't have. All right. So computed tomography is just off the list. Off the list. If you hear the doctor saying it, just say no. Just say, uh, no thanks, I know what you're up to. And I'm not buying it. Okay, what are we on? Number seven. Carotid artery ultrasonography and stenting. Stenting. Yikes, sounds like fun. So carotid ultrasounds are done to test the width of arteries at the neck. So they would do this to uh, help indicate your risk for stroke. Stroke is when blood flow to your brain gets cut off. So obviously that is not a good thing. And early diagnosis is actually a really important part of uh, stopping strokes. So having your carotid artery, this is the one in your neck, um, tested and then deciding whether or not you want to put a stent in it. So a stent is like something that will actually open up the artery. They put it in via surgery and it opens up the artery so that you prevent strokes from happening or you lower your risk from strokes from happening. So early diagnosis is a good thing. However, according to our study here, researchers found nine out of 10 tests being done on asymptomatic patients, patients with no symptoms, that actually resulted in the artery widening stent being inserted were done on inappropriate grounds. Sounds like a false positive to me. And since these stents require surgery, uh, you're inflating the, the risk that you're undergoing unnecessary surgery. And, and surgery is no joke, people. It is no joke. So, Carotid artery ultrasonography. Sounds like they're trying to upsell you on a stint. And then once once they once you decide to get the stint, they're gonna be like, oh, we want to put the the rust proof spray on the stint. And that'll cost you an extra 150. Well, let me tell you here. Don't buy it. Don't go for it. Don't fall for it. Carotid artery ultrasonography and stenting. What are we on? Number six. Ooh. Here we go. Number six most overused medical treatment. Aggressive management of prostate cancer. Well, that sounds like a good thing, actually. Uh, prostate cancer is another condition that can be treated easily if found early. Right? I've heard that. I'm an aging male. I've been told by my uh, physician, uh, and if you're an aging male like me, or you happen to watch American football, you'll uh, see commercials for prostate tests all the time. So they do have a blood, a blood test available now that tests for markers um, 
for prostate antigens. So how so this is you know a good thing. It's just a simple blood test, and they could see uh, if the prostate antigens are at high levels, which might indicate uh, problems with your prostate. However, it's hard to tell if these antigens found in your blood test are produced by an aggressive tumor that needs to be dealt with right away or a slow growing one that basically will never cause you any problem. So the results here say in just one or just 1% 1 of men who had their prostate removed and therefore risked the complications that go along with that, bing, 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 surgery, um, died of the cancer. So just 1% of people who had their prostate removed died of cancer. So that sounds pretty good. However, when they looked at the men who kept their prostate, it was about the same. Only 1% actually died of the cancer. So turns out, keep your prostate. If you can, keep it as long as possible. Don't let the doctor take it. They're probably selling it to China. I, I don't know if that's true, but if the doctor suggests that you should take out your prostate, I would really hope that somebody out there goes, hey, I know what you're up to, and I'm not giving my prostate to some billionaire in China. See what he says then. Number five, supplemental oxygen for patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Again, that sounds like a good thing. I have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Give me some oxygen. I probably have trouble breathing. Why wouldn't I want oxygen? Well, here's why. Giving more oxygen to patients with the lung illness, COPD, didn't help their lungs work better or improve their well-being. Oh, well, that's great. However, it can cause them to retain carbon dioxide. Now, what are the effects of retaining carbon dioxide, you ask? Not good. Drowsiness, headaches, and in severe cases, lack of respiration, which may lead to death. So, giving people oxygen when they have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is just not, just not necessary. It just doesn't work. Fascinating stuff. What are we at? Number... Four, surgery for meniscal cartilage tears. Ew. So ripping the C-shaped shock-absorbing discs of cartilage inside your knee is no laughing matter. Of course not. But going to the trouble of repairing it surgically was found to have a few benefits that couldn't be achieved through conservative management and rehabilitation. Don't go under the knife. Do it the, uh, the old-fashioned way. Get on the weight machine. Get in the pool. There is no quick fix, people, for meniscal cartilage tears. Number three, nutritional support in medical inpatients. Another great-sounding treatment. I want nutritional support. I want my Flintstone vitamins. I want my chewables, especially when I'm in the hospital, surrounded by all that bacteria and whatnot. So again, according to our article, overall malnutrition doesn't do a patient much good, naturally. On the other hand, giving nutritional support to critically ill patients made no difference in terms of hospital stay or mortality. 
even if it helped them put on weight. So they're just trying to fatten you up. Surprised Alex Jones is not all over this. So, in the event of failing organs or metabolic complications, that support might carry risks that aren't balanced by benefits. Again, harm outweighing potential benefits. Risk of harm. So, I guess, don't eat good food? Well, the hospital's already all over that if you've ever had to stay in the hospital and eat hospital food. Boom boom Hospital food jokes. This is where we're at, people. I'm a single Brad. Number two. Again, in no particular order. Number two. Use of antibiotics. You know, I should have kept that for number one. Superbugs, people are super afraid of superbugs. So... A 2016 study estimated 506 prescriptions were being written in 2010 to 2011 for every 1,000 people. Only 353 of these, though, could be considered appropriate. Yikes. So the CDC has a national action plan for combating antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and they are trying to reduce the number of inappropriate outpatient antibiotic prescriptions by 50% within the next few years. So, the researchers noted that of the measures in this plan, the most effective was to use social pressures. So, bullying. Encouraging doctors to take note of good prescription practices among their colleagues. Shame and bullying. Turn the doctors on themselves in a Lord of the Flies type scenario. Shame them for overprescribing. Shame on you, doctors. In all serious though, seriousness, though, antibiotic resistance is a problem. Um, we're all not going to die of the superbug anytime soon, but um, I like the idea of the doctors shaming themselves. They could do it like a, even like a, if you remember in grade school when you got the stickers and, you know, Cindy always had the most stickers because she was a suck up and did all of her homework and was the first to raise her hand and was always quiet and calm in class yeah you remember she had all the stickers by her name all the rest of us all we wanted was a couple stars but we just couldn't focus i digress number one the number one out of the top 10 most unnecessary medical treatments according to scientists is the use of cardiac imaging. Don't take pictures of your heart. Cardiac imaging for patients with chest pain was found to have tripled over the past decade while doing nothing for low-risk patients. This risks leading to unnecessary hospital stays and interventions. Here we go, these false positives again. They're just trying to get you through the door so they can take your prostate and sell it to China. The solution, according to the researchers, doctors should share decision-making with the patient. Oh, that's what I want. My doctor to be like, what do you think we should do? 
well, that's our list. And uh, I'm going to put the disclaimer in here at the end that um, the science alert piece that I got all this from has put in. It says, none of these results should be taken to mean these tests and procedures are to be avoided. So don't listen to a word I say. We are not medical professionals at Science Alert, nor are, am I a medical professional at Too Bad For You. So our best advice is, as always, don't be afraid to ask your doctor. Well, there you have it, people. The top 10 most unnecessary medical treatments. Don't fall for it. But as always, ask your doctor. I don't know what I'm talking about most of the time. I do have a final story, though, something that I do know what I'm talking about, and that is whales, humpback whales to be exact. In an interesting study on humpback whale microbiomes, researchers found that they could actually use drones to non-invasively sample whales, sample the microbiome of whales. How do you get a drone to sample the microbiome of a whale, you ask? Well, you expertly pilot this drone equipped with bacteria sampling equipment as close as you can to the blowhole of a surfaced whale and wait for him to blow or her, wait for him or her to blow. That mist that comes out of the whale, the, the whale's blow, as they call it in technical terms, the exhalations of a whale, uh, can get picked up by the drone. The drone grabs all that goo, and, and there you have your sample. So there you have your sample directly from the lungs of humpback whales. They then take that to the lab, obviously, and they sequence it <clears throat> to get the microbiome. Let me take a step back if you don't unaware of what microbiome is. It's basically like all of the microbes that live inside your body um, so or the whale's body for this purpose. And so these are things like gut bacteria, you know, the bacteria that line, you know, your lungs, um, your skin, all these things. And we're learning more and more about the role of the microbiome in things like health, even in mental illness, which is actually a story that hopefully we cover soon here on Two Bread for You. Um but yeah, so it's it's also in terms of like whale conservation, it's important uh, for us to understand what is the healthy microbiome of a whale. So when we see um, disease or um, other um, issues with whale populations, we can look to the microbiome and see if there's changes there uh, and start to figure out the role of whale microbiome in uh, in their health so this is what they did they went to both coasts of north america uh, they went off the coast of maine and off the coast of vancouver island and they flew these drones over top of the surface whales got the whales to blow all over the drones and they got their microbiome samples and it turns out uh, they got they were able to recover a large amount of the bacteria of the known whale microbiome and they figured this might actually be one of the most consistent um, animal microbiomes to date so in other words it worked really well they got a lot of whale snot and they got a lot of bacteria from it um, 
in their samples, they found the closest relatives of the 20 core microbes in the samples um, have been previously detected in other marine mammals. So the 20 um, you know, largest uh, groups of bacteria that they found in the samples, when they looked at those, the closest relatives of those, they were able to identify, or those had been identified in other marine mammals, so you know, seals or dolphins or something. Um, and this is interesting because it shows that there's some consistency um, across marine mammals and that these species of bacteria and their related and their relatives um, will probably represent, you know, the healthy microbiome of marine mammals. Good information to know. And the other really important um, discovery in this study was that the findings, you know, the identities of the of the microbes in um, in in whales in the whale microbiome was consistent on both coasts. So humpbacks off the coast of Vancouver Island and humpbacks off the coast of Maine have similar microbiomes. Again, that consistency shows us that it's 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 important that this is the the healthy background bacteria that you would expect in any whale. Um, well, any whale's lungs anyway, um, anywhere in the world, well, at least off the two coasts of, of North America, but uh, that's quite the distance. Um, so that's a good find. I mean, we know that there's large, there's, there's uh, large numbers of bacteria that all humans share in our gut, but our gut microbiome, they can easily tell where you're from, where you were born even because of the first things that you ingest or that your parents or your mother has uh, eats, uh, which therefore then she feeds you, um, really shapes uh, the, the, the gut flora, they call it, the, the bacteria in your gut, so much so that you can uh, identify where people were born. And that, that, that signature will stay with you even if you move as a very young child to an area with a completely different diet. So there is variation, but they found quite a bit of consistency uh, between the whales. So that is good. It's all good signs. We're getting to know the humpback whale microbiome and using drones to do it. It's great stuff. Really great stuff. Well, my friends, that is all I have for you. It's a short one. Uh, I hope I didn't bore you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Like I said, I'm a single Brad today. I'm just trying to give you some content, just trying to get the ball rolling again. Brad will be back next week. He is off traveling. He sends his regards. Uh, so we will have an episode, hopefully recorded end of next week, uh, put out the week after. So stay tuned. We are going to be putting out more regular content. We're going to make an effort to be more active on social media. We're going to get our socials going, you know. Um, and yeah, uh, we hope you're enjoying it. Like I said, give us a review. We would love it. We would absolutely love it if you would do that. Uh, follow us on Twitter, at 2Brad4U. That is the same handle for Instagram. Um, follow Tabby Bruce, the show mascot, at Tabby Bruce. Brad's adorable cat. I miss the little guy. You know, it's not just Brad that I miss when I have to do these episodes solo. You know, Tabby Bruce, I love you. All right, friends, 
Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we will be back very soon. So until then, bye-bye.